The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. So, so Andrea, I'm going to chat for a while, and if you find yourself thinking, what is he talking about? Please, you can ask. So when Andre asked if I if I could come and and do a couple of weeks, yeah, there's there's some handouts. If everybody got a handout, if you haven't gotten a handout, they're available. And I she two weeks, and I thought, well, I'll do wisdom and compassion. That's two. So it was an easy choice. Wisdom and compassion are traditionally understood as the two wings of the Dharma. The Dharma takes flight on the wings. That's the metaphor of the bird taking flight with both wings, and you need both wings. Uh, and so this is, this is where the image comes from, wisdom and compassion, the two wings of the Dharma. The Buddha basically said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So if wisdom and compassion are the wings of the Dharma, somehow they have to be related to suffering and the end of suffering, dukkha and the end of dukkha. One of my earliest teachers, Ayakema, used to say, everything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess Dharma. The Four Noble Truths, what we call the Four Noble Truths, um, is the Buddha's articulation of his insight into the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. So what I wanted to do, my thought was, that I would try to uh, articulate the mechanics of the end of suffering through, through an examination of compassion and wisdom. So in order to do that, I thought, well, it would be really helpful to figure out what we mean by suffering, what we mean by dukkha. And so this chart that I I've, that I've put together, I, I put it together for my group in Davis because I tend to be a, a visual kind of person. Not only that, once you put it down like this, you can see connections between things and you keep more than one thing in mind at the same time. And so I find it particularly helpful. Also, this is... Uh, just as a disclaimer, this is my understanding, and so if you understand it differently, maybe this will be uh, some help to you in articulating or clarifying or, you know, putting, you know, cementing your own understanding. Um, but I'm not sure that it's the idea of the, the tradition as it comes to us. But I, and, and you'll notice if you look on this chart, I describe it as the Buddha's insight into dissatisfaction and suffering. And I call it the four teachings. I don't call it the four truths because in my understanding, the, the label Four Noble Truths is something that was uh, pasted on later after the Buddha. The, in, in the early texts, the Buddha says, you, you can find uh, this, this pattern quoted over and over, such is suffering, such the origin of suffering, such the cessation, and such the path of cessation. And you can find that scattered throughout without the label Four Noble Truths. You know, so I think of this as four teachings. And I may refer 
interchangeably to four truths because that's how people recognize them. And if I say the third teaching, people might be going, is he still? So I, I may go back and forth, and I hope if that causes confusion, let me know. So the four teachings, the four truths, are represented on this chart by the four, the four columns. And the words that are, that are in italics are words in the Pali language, which is the, the written language that approximates pretty closely, somewhat closely, the kind of uh, language that the Buddha used when he spoke, when he taught. And it's the language of the earliest texts. So that usually the four, four truths, four teachings are such as suffering. So that would be the first column, the origin of suffering, the origin of dukkha, tanha, the cessation of dukkha, the rhoda, and the path of cessation. Now dukkha is interesting. The word um, it doesn't have a single word that translates directly into English. And we sort of like to have a single word but really, it's a, it's a concept that, that spans everything from unsatisfactoriness to suffering and irritation and frustration and stress and unease. All of the stuff that's kind of a drag. Or, as my friend Lee Brazington says, he, he defines dukkha as bummer. <laughs> but sometimes it's just a drag, but it's dukkha. But sometimes it can be really, in any case, the experience dukkha uh, in the text on the bottom of the first column, the first teaching lists the experiences of dukkha. And this is what's in this list. The text says the, the, the truth of suffering. And then there's a list. So the list is, I'll just read through it. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, and despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. Anybody missed out on any of those yet? <laughs> Trust me, they're all a drag. <clears throat> the Buddha says the task is to understand dukkha. Understand dukkha. What is it? How does it come about? How does it happen? How do you make it go away? To understand it. There's, you know, it's not articulated all the time. Stephen Batchelor, for example, in his, in his recent book, says this is the Buddha's definition of suffering, this list and that somehow pain is innately suffering, inherently unsatisfactory. My take is that these are the experiences that we regard as unsatisfactory. These are the ones we think of as, you know, a drag or a bummer or dukkha, suffering that we bear. There are ways, the three ways here that the, that the Buddha articulated three different kinds of dukkha. 
I'm just going to talk about them because the idea is to try to get a sense of what we're talking about. Dukkha, dukkha, I love that one. That's the, the physical or emotional pain or unpleasantness that comes with life. You've got a body, it's going to hurt. At some point, it's going to get sick. It's going to get old. Birth, aging, sickness, death. Pain, sorrow. You know, if you live with people, there will be sorrow, grief. <clears throat> Not that there won't be gladness, too. The Buddha was concerned with, uh, with our dissatisfaction. So life comes with this stuff. Unless you know somebody who's missed it, you know, we like to think that it might be possible to make it not happen. And we work to make it not happen. But really, it happens. But Paranama Dukkha, I think of it as a Nietzsche Dukkha. It's the, 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 the unsatisfactoriness of the fact that everything changes. Sometimes we think that's good. You know, you have a headache, you want it to change and go away. That's good. And everybody encourages you to say, this too shall pass. But so will your, so will your health. You know, we, we, we don't like to do that side. Losing what you cherish. You know, I mean, um, the, the losing what you cherish is, is part of that. Because things were impermanent. Think of it. If everything worked out to your just perfectly what the way the universe was, the way you wanted it, completely, nothing left out, it's all downhill from there. Because everything's going to change. But you don't have to worry that it's, it's not all downhill. <laughs> um, but, the, but the fact that things change, and we sort of know, everybody knows, well, everything changes, but then we go, I just broke my favorite mug, you know. I, yeah, I know everything's impermanent, but oh no, I lost my job. You know, we we should shouldn't we expect things to end? All things subject to arising, the Buddha said, are subject to passing away. Sankara dukkha is the the pain and unpleasantness that arises from expectations and judgments, from delusions about the way things are. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week because delusions, when we act on delusion, things don't work out the way we think because we had it wrong going in. And then we, we seem surprised. It's the suffering of expecting or, or feeling that things need to be, should be a particular way. And when they aren't, we're miffed at least. You know. Sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to spot dukkha because it's not just the pain. It's not just the unpleasantness. All the things here in this list are unpleasant, I think, for me anyway. But it's not just the unpleasantness. It's something we add on to it. It's something we add on to it. So let me, let me um, give you an example because we need to learn to recognize dukkha in our experience. And sometimes it's hard. I went to the Apple store. They called me, said my computer was ready. So I, I'm going into the store and I get to the front door and I see the desk at the back. I know that's where I want to be. They've got my computer, it's fixed, I'm going to get it, I want it. 
And the guy with the iPad at the gate says, can I help you? Yeah, I want to get my computer. It's at the back. Oh, well, um, can you go wait in this line over here? Well, I wasn't really looking forward to that, but I went over and I waited in the line, and I, there were two or three people, and then a guy with an iPad took my name, and he said, okay, now you go and wait in the line across the... Well, I was um, um, dissatisfied. <laughs> and I, I stood in the second line, and I, I was... Actually, I was really dissatisfied, because I, I could see where I wanted to be, and I knew, and they changed the procedures, and I couldn't... And I, I guess maybe fuming, sort of, light simmer. But in any case, I wasn't, and I thought, I just, I just don't want to be here. You know, I'm going to go home. And, and, oh, no, then I have to come back and do this again? Oh, that'll be worse. I'm, stu I'm stuck in this line. Ah, as soon as I realized I wasn't going to leave and I wasn't going to make a scene, I actually stopped fuming. What was the point? I was there, and I actually got to watch what was going on around me. I, I watched somebody buy a computer with cash, you know, counting out the bills. I thought that was pretty odd. I kept looking around. But I wouldn't have noticed that if I'd just been angry. But that add-on anger, that's, that's the dukkha part, that we add in ourselves. It's not just the unpleasantness of it taking a little bit longer. It's the reactivity to it. You ever get upset in traffic? You know, the, in the, the more you're in a hurry, the, the worse it is. Ajahn Amaro says, did you ever notice that you're traffic? <laughs> we don't notice that we are traffic as well. But, you know, the, it's not about the traffic. If you're not in a hurry, what's to be upset about? You just, it's just traffic. You're going slow and you can be visiting with friends in the car or listening to, uh, oh dear, NPR. That's <laughs> nah, not going to help. <laughs> so it's what we bring to the traffic that makes it upsetting. That's the dukkha element. It's, what, it's the, the part where we are waiting in line at the supermarket. Did I pick the wrong line? You know, and, <laughs> and, it's, it's, and it's partly the hurry up in us. If, if you stop hurrying up, who cares what line? But if you're on a schedule, dukkha is the, is the way we make things worse. It's what we add into that unpleasantness. Because it's unpleasant already. You know? And then we make it worse. So, what, so the way we make it worse, the Buddha says, the origin of dukkha is tanha. And this is, this is interesting. Tanha is a word that uh, translates most directly as thirst, it's, it's, which describes the, the, the compelling nature of when you're thirsty. It's, it's physical. It's organ, the organism wants water. It's like you don't have a choice, right? Often the word tanha is described, is translated as craving, or sometimes just simply as desire. 
And then, you've, and then there is a strain of thought which you will come across if you mess around with the Dharma much. You'll come across a strain of thought which goes like this. Desire is the cause of suffering. Desire is the cause of birth. So our, we are reborn because of craving, because of our desire. So that it gets you know, folded into the reincarnation idea. You don't need to do that, but you can. There are people who do. Um, there's a, an, an effort to try to describe this. Is a sub, you're trying to describe a subjective experience. It's hard. We can, we can all look at this and say pen, because we can all agree. We can, but if I say love, and then I say cars love shell, what, do, what does the word mean? You know, there are, lots of, there are lots of words that describe, I mean, internal experiences, subjective experiences, that it's difficult to describe them with the precision we can use when we can specify operations to, to direct our attention out here. How do we, so we use metaphor, art addresses some of this, conjures things. Um, but talking about these internal, these internal experiences is kind of tough trying to distinguish different kinds of desire. Well, isn't desire for the Dharma good and desire for, you know, and what about if you want, if you have the desire to turn left at the next block and you're in the left turn lane? So everything is perfect. Is that desire? Is that... So I'm, I've been thinking about this for some time, and the, way, the metaphor that I use to understand tanha comes out of evolutionary biology and neuroscience. So the idea is that, well, over the course of evolution we have been cultured in a couple of pretty profound ways. We have an instinct, a, a, you can call it a craving, to survive. It's built in to every cell. Every one of our ancestors, not just human, but, you know, to the single cell, wants to survive. One that didn't care, an ancestor that didn't care, wouldn't have been an ancestor. You know, it'd be lunch before it had a chance to pass on its genetics. So we get, you know, the desire to reproduce and survive. Buddha says, Bhava Tanha, B-H-A-V-A, Bhava Tanha is the felt need or disposition to succeed and survive in the future. It's usually, it's usually rendered as um, becoming. Bhavatanha, the desire to become, the desire to become. You have to be alive to become. And, and we have this incredibly powerful computer that lets us plan strategies and figure out how to survive And how do we take our cue? I mean, there isn't really an instruction manual that comes. The only instruction manual we usually get is parents. And, and once we become parents, we see how confused <laughs> they were. And we're sort of, you know, it's the blind leading the blind. So in terms of our evolution, pleasant experience is usually better for us. So we, we have a disposition to seek pleasantness. We don't, not, not any particular pleasant experience. 
So the Buddha would, would use kamatanha to describe that innate disposition, that inbred proclivity towards pleasant experience. We want our experience pleasant. We don't get up in the morning and say, that was a lousy restaurant and the portions were small <laughs> and uh, let's go back. You know, how, it was too good yesterday. How do we mess it up today? You know, we, didn't, we just don't do that. We navigate in terms of pleasantness and unpleasantness. Rikha Bodhi says we spend all of our time trying to increase our pleasant experience, decrease our unpleasant experience, and figure out just how all this relates to me. Kamatanha, the, the disposition towards pleasant experience. And these things are built in. You know, the survival impulses happen faster than we can be aware of. We can't we don't have access to the signals from our amygdala. Fight or flight kicks in before we have an opportunity to even be aware of it. You know how that works. You know, as you're walking, you're, you're in the car, somebody cuts in on you, your foot hits the brake before you even, I mean, it just, it's automatic. You don't sit there and think, well, let's see, should I, is this car approaching at a speed that, no, it just, psh, hap, it just happens. It happens fast. It happens before we are able to, when we become aware later. And then, you know, then we, then we get cranky. <laughs> you know. So a lot of this stuff is, is on automatic pilot. So what happens when we, when we encounter the world? We're built to want to survive and advance. We've got agendas and ambition and... And we want into the future. We can watch ourselves when you're sitting. You can watch the thoughts that come up and notice which ones are about becoming something, you know, angling towards something, working towards something. Bhavatanha, these are manifestations. But when we encounter the world, what's that in, what's that in the, first, the first truth? Oh my gosh, birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, all your plans, all, all the cleverness, all the righteousness, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and losing what you cherish. Those things happen. So what happens to us then? Well, there's Vibhava Tanha, the third the third kind of tanha. It's the disposition, the need, we feel it as a need to eliminate pain and unpleasantness. So when it shows up, we move to make it go away. Anybody not behave this way? I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it seems to be pretty straightforward. It's just the way we are. We're built this way. We didn't plan it. Anybody plan it? I mean, I, I, for me, I think I just showed up. You know, in this package, I didn't plan it out. It happened on its own. So, the origin of dukkha is tanha. Tanha is what turns the elements in that first teaching into dukkha. Pain can just be pain. You know, it doesn't need to be 
the source of anguish and anxiety and you know, papancha, crazy thinking. But you know, you, you, might, you might have been there at some point where there's a sensation that you sort of didn't want, didn't like, and then, then the stories start. The proliferation, the dukkha starts. The making it worse starts. I actually think that you know, the Buddha's teaching, in a way, you know, at a deep level, is don't make things worse. Don't. Let's figure out how not to add tanha into the mix. Why? Because the third teaching here is that it, the cessation of dukkha is possible with the cessation of tanha. That's the language in the text. So dukkha itself is a composite experience. It's, a, it's made up of the unpleasantness, the pain and unpleasantness that comes with life, and our disposition that comes with us, our disposition in the world. When things are, are pleasant, not so much dukkha. You know? Things unpleasant, mm, got to deal with that. Struggle, struggle. Suffer, suffer. So just as a preview here, the, the compassionate response to remove suffering is to remove one or the other of these elements because these are the elements that condition dukkha. So to bring an end to suffering would be to either remove the unpleasant experience or to somehow interrupt the functioning of tanha. That's what we're going to talk about are the mechanics of that. How, do we, how can we do that? Tanha itself is what the Buddha calls an underlying tendency. It, isn't, it doesn't manifest itself directly. It shows up as greed and hatred Desire, wanting, greed, wanting, hatred, aversion, irritation, ill will, anger, the negative side, wanting and not wanting, greed, hatred, and delusion, all three of which are active manifestations of tanha. So the Buddha said the cessation of dukkha is the cessation of tanha. thought about that a lot because some of this tanha stuff feels to me like it's built in. Buddha says there is a path to the cessation of suffering, a path of cessation. So that's the, the fourth truth, the fourth teaching. And there are eight elements here. I remember the first, time, the first time I ever encountered the Eightfold Path, I thought, too many folds. I just want to get, what is the one thing I need to know? I got to get going. <laughs> you know, eight is too many. That, that was what I thought. You know, but then, then came along the 12 links of dependent origination. That was really too many. <laughs> And then the 37 wings of awakening. <laughs> somebody, somebody liked lists. 
So the path of cessation, well, you know, it's interesting. There are, there are teachers who will tell you that the path is not the goal. The path to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. The path to Nirvana is not Nirvana. I seem, I have, a, I, my view is this. This is the way of living without suffering. That's the path. And the Buddha said this path is to be cultivated or practiced. And there are eight elements here. And so this is, this, these eight elements, this is the Buddha's program. The Buddha, you know, this is, from my point of view, pretty much what I spend my time on. It's the whole ball game. It's not that if you, you know, live the path, you'll get enlightened. It's that when you're enlightened, you can live the path. The goal is to live the path. It's an eightfold path, too. It's not a one-fold path. It's not just mindfulness meditation. I think of it like the, like the eightfold basketball. Okay, so you got a basketball. It's a sphere. It's brown. It's got dimples on it. It's made of rubber. It's about 15 inches across, weighs a couple pounds, compressed air in it. It's got black stripes on it. Is that eight? So, you know, but it's, you, you can't play with just the brown. It's the whole thing. The Eightfold Path is an articulation of a way of being. So I'll just go through these things really quickly, and then we'll go back and look at them in a little more detail, because the mechanics for, for bringing an end to suffering involves the practice of these elements. And you'll notice that, you know, I've, I've made squares and ovals and different colored backgrounds and different color texts. And here and those are some ways of, of slicing this up to, to uh, get a, a, a different purchase on, on them. Let's just run through them real quickly because a lot of people move through them quickly and can't recall them. They don't live in the midst of them, awash in them. Samaditi. Oh my gosh, let me say something about Sama. Notice how the word Sama is the first one of the Samaditi, Sanasakapa. All these things are Sama. And this is one of those things, again, where everybody looks, they want to have one word to translate this. So usually the translation is right. So it would be right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right, you know, right is sort of not quite so satisfactory because it suggests wrong, and that may not be quite what... what so some people like to say wise intention, wise speech. Wise. Some people will say skillful because they're trying to come up with one word. But really, the Eightfold Path exists. This is the path, this is the way of being without dukkha. So the elements on the path, each of the elements on the path ex exist on the path to the extent and, and in the, the way in which they contribute to the cessation of dukkha and for the abandonment of tanha. So it's more than just right, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bigger thing. Right understanding 
is the understanding which enables you to live without suffering. And so actually I, I put it in, in yellow. I don't know, actually it's a square. And then the rest of them are ovals. Because you could look at the Eightfold Path just as this is what you think, this is your understanding, and then there's what you do. Intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort. So there's, you know, your understanding and your action, your behavior. You could slice it up that way. Right intention. It's the intention that doesn't make things worse. What intentions don't make things worse? Because we can, add, we can make things worse. We practice that a lot. <laughs> and, and we're pretty good at it. By the time you get to be older, <laughs> you got it locked in. And you know what? It, it can make you pretty grumpy. Right intention. Classically, it's renunciation. It's, 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 it's uh, renunciation. Renunciation of tanha. When, when tanha and its products surface in your experience, you could recognize them and let them go. Sort of catch and release. You know? How would you recognize them? Well, samasati, samasamadhi, right? the meditation elements at the bottom. Right mindfulness and right concentration. Hachan Cha, who stands in, in this lineage through, through this center, used to say, meditation is like this pen, this end, Concentration, this end, mindfulness. It's hard to develop concentration if you don't notice when your mind is drifting. And if your mind is always drifting, it's hard to actually focus in on anything. And so it requires the cultivation of the two together. Samasati, you know, I think my view, which is certainly up, open to dispute. I said, samasati is not the same thing as satipatthana. Satipatthana is practice. We learn to pay attention to our breath, to the feelings in our body. We learn to notice whether things are pleasant or unpleasant. But really, samasati is the mindfulness of, it's the awareness, it's the recognition, it's the mindfulness of tanha when it surfaces so that we can spot it right understanding, so that we know it when we see it. Sama Samadhi is the stability of mind. Concentration, sometimes it's, it's taught as. But right concentration is the concentration which enables us to keep track of our intentions. If the intentions are unskillful, and we're about to do something that will we may later regret. Um, that's how we would. That's how we would know. And then there's the fruit of the practice. From my point of view, I mean, often it's 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 taught this way: the sila elements, the virtue elements, the ethical practice elements, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's it's usually it's it's often taught. You got to get your ethical act together so you can have a good meditation. I think it's the other way around. I think you meditate so that you can actually get your ethical act together 
the fruit of the practice is living without dukkha. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. That basically means all the time. You know, there's this passage in the, the Metta Sutta where whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. That means all the time, really. I mean, if you want to get all fundamentalist and legal, you could say, well, what if I'm bending over? Or leaning against a wall? What if I'm leaning against Then do I have to sustain that? Then is that any good? If, I mean, basically, it's a poetic way of saying all the time. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. To be able to live right speech, right action, and right livelihood, the Buddha says, would be the bliss of blamelessness. You know, right speech, right action, right livelihood are often taught as, you know, they're rendered in terms of, of the precepts. You know, don't kill, don't steal, don't, oh, commit adultery, don't, don't lie. I, it's easier to just cite the commandment, don't engage in harmful sexuality. But they're not really rules. Those rules are just a framework for setting us up so that we can live a life of right speech, right action, right livelihood. That's the payoff. The payoff is living without suffering. And all the elements of the Eightfold Path support that. So our understanding is, is important. I left off, the, classically, the understanding. What right understanding is usually taught to be the understanding of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. And that unsatisfactoriness, you know, reflects, it's the awareness of this whole chart. Understanding dukkha. There's a difference between knowing about impermanence and actually living knowing that we are impermanent. We don't want to be. And, and so what is delusion? You know, greed, hatred, delusion is pretending it's not the way we know it is. You know, when I, I think of the precepts sometimes, the fifth precept, no drugs or alcohol to the point of heedlessness. And I think, well, what about hospice? You know, the purpose of hospice is the highest quality of life for the time remaining, right? Doesn't that make all of us, put all of us in hospice? No. But boy, do we not want to think that. We're going to live forever or die trying. We can't even imagine it. And actually, you guys are familiar with ter terror management theory? It's interesting. Um, Analio Bhikkhu um, put me onto it. It was in a, an interview with uh, the Barry Center. Terror management theory comes out of evolutionary biology. It's a psychology that comes out of that. The idea is that Terror is a functional, emotional state for an animal that's faced with an existential threat. It marshals all the resources of the organism to survive. And that's not a bad thing. 
in evolutionary sense. Ha-ha, we can imagine our death, and it scares us. And, and so we do things like <laughs> conjure other worlds that we're going to go to afterwards, you know, multiple lives. We want to, we, we, we imagine things we, we don't, and the, the, um, it's testable. We cling to things more tightly when we are afraid. We become more conventional. So that a study, this is, I, I just love this study. They took a bunch of judges, and for some reason I have to go back and check. I think they were sitting judges in Louisiana but they might have been somewhere else. I'm pretty sure they were in the South, and for some reason, I think it was Louisiana. And they took like 100 of them, and they divided them into two groups. And one group, they, they uh, well, both groups, they gave a personality inventory, a pretty plain personality. And one of the groups, as part of the questions, would get questions like, how do you feel when you think about your death? What would you like on your tombstone? You know, things like that. They call it mortality salience, reminding you of the fact that you're mortal. So they do it, and then they present the judges with a case. And the case was some, pro these are sitting judges, some prostitute, and they, they have to set bail for the prostitute. And the judges who did the personality inventory set bail at somewhere around $50. And the judges who were reminded of their mortality set it at close to $500. And the, the, the theoretical explanation is people want to cling to, to, the, more, to, the, to the more standard morality, the more they want to cling and hold on, be more, you know. They do similar tests with uh, politicians do we want the charismatic person, the problem solver? Do we want the experienced person? They always, the more mortality salience gets kicked in, uh, you know where it's going to go, to the charismatic person. Anyway, that's delusion is pretending things aren't the way they are. And how are things? They're unsatisfactory. So living without suffering is to be able to live this path. So, so given this, this vision here, how does compassion and wisdom factor in to the cessation of suffering? So I'll say a little bit about compassion and a a little bit about wisdom, and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit about this, for, and then next week I'll go into some more detail on those things based on the structure of suffering as, as listed here. If you want to put an end to suffering, to dukkha, dukkha is a conditioned arising dependent on unpleasantness, pain, unpleasant experience and our disposition. So we can remove the suffering 
by removing the unpleasantness. Someone's hungry, you can feed them. If they're lonely, you can sit with them and comfort them. If they're in pain, you can alleviate the pain one way or another, maybe with medication, maybe. So maybe that should be the ninth right medication. <laughs> so you can remove, and this is, this is typical traditional compassionate behavior, taking care of people and helping them remove the unpleasantness, the pain, the un, you know, what's making them sick or hungry or sad. This traditional compassionate work. The Buddha didn't have, he didn't set up charities. His, his, the compassionate work that he taught was the wisdom of freedom. That's how you remove the tanha part, or how you address the tanha part. And there are a couple of ways of doing it. I'm just going to mention it briefly so you can see where we're going, and then we'll, we'll have to articulate it more next week. Some of this stuff, kamatanha, bhavatanha, this stuff is automatic. It comes up on its own. You know, you close your eyes, follow your breath, what happens? Thoughts. It's not just me, right? And so, you know, you say, well, can you stop those thoughts from happening? Well, usually I, I, t I teach in prisons and, and uh, um, I can get the prisoner's attention when I, when I say, you know, can you stop the... Th well, so who's doing that thinking? They don't know. Like they work on that. Who's doing that thinking? It's happening on its own. It happens a couple hundred milliseconds before the thought arises, but a couple hundred milliseconds before we become aware of it. So it's already underway when we see it. So greed and hatred, clinging and aversion, grasping and not grasping, those things happen. That's the way we're built. If we are able to spot it early, if we can be mindful and spot it early, learn to recognize it, we can just step back when it shows up. We don't have to take the bait. So I walk my dog. I've got a, a lab and she's, I like, to walk, I like to walk the dog. And when you walk a dog a lot, they actually drop into the habit and they're, she's really good. She's right there, you know, and uh, but she's young. So we're walking along a, a bit ago and oh, maybe 30 yards ahead there's a couple with a little dog. My dog, so I, I, she's cute, so I, she starts to bounce up and down on her front. We're walking along and she's bouncing up and down and then pretty soon she's, oh my gosh, I, and she's going crazy and then she starts barking. And at that point, you know, I stop and I get in front of her and say, knock it off. And she says, okay. <clears throat> but if I'd, if, when she started bouncing up and down, just the very beginning, if I'd said, uh-uh, she would have stopped right then. Much easier. I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to get grumpy. 
So we can do that. That's how we would, rec- we would recognize these, these elements arising. And recognizing them, we could not take the bait. The bait being that which we want to make go away. The bhavatanha, make it go away. Not that we shouldn't try to ease suffering, but we should figure out how not to make it worse because the unpleasantness has already happened. The worst has already happened. So now the question is, do we make it worse or not? We'll talk a little bit about things that we can, ways we can recognize Tanha and its products when they show up in our experience. The other side is the side of wisdom, which is right understanding. And just, you know, to do it really quickly, we, you know, right understanding is the understanding of dukkha, anicca, dukkha, anatta, um, unsatisfactoriness. But we think that satisfaction is possible. And because we do, we suffer when it doesn't come through for us. If you buy a lottery ticket and you don't win, you sort of go, well, yeah. It's not that you didn't want to win. You bought the ticket. But, you know, right? I mean, what are the odds? Right? So it's not a big deal. But if the lottery ticket you bought is an assumption that there should be social justice in the world, then when there's not, we suffer. Not that you shouldn't address injustice. You don't need to suffer over it. It's the way the world is. What are we going to do in it now? So overcoming the delusion of satisfaction, the delusion of permanence, and the delusion of substance. We'll talk about that next week, too. I want to be able to deal just with the mechanics of making tanha not enter into the mix. So let me just, uh, before we move to next week, let me just check with you guys and see if there are questions, thoughts, comments, disagreements, lack, muddiness, lack of clarity, please. Um, so, um, I think that the so I'm just wondering about the How's that? Okay. Go for it. All right. So my, my question has to do with, it's, it's perhaps word choice, but life without suffering uh-huh. versus the path of cessation. Mm-hmm. So if we're automatically wired for tanha, it's like maybe like minimizing suffering. Some of it's going to show up because it's going to be there and then we're going to realize it and then do something to not make it worse. Right, well, that's, yeah, that's right. We can, we can interrupt it and we can 
what I think of as heading it off in the past, you don't have to let go of what you don't grab onto in the first place. If we don't see things as an existential threat, where's the fear? So seeing through the delusion of self. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. Anybody else? Anything else? Yeah, please. Uh, I had a mechanical question about um, dukkha. Yeah. In the first step here, you list three different types of dukkha. You have dukkha, dukkha, yeah. and so on. Um, and in the big red squiggly box that says dukkha is life's pain and unpleasantness plus tanha. Right. Um, in the third column, it says the cessation of dukkha is the abandonment of tanha. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm comparing that to the red box, it seems like the abandonment of tanha still leaves life's pain and unpleasantness. It does. So, But it doesn't... I, okay. okay. I, I'm yeah, sorry. That, that, that was the question. Is like, are we talking about two different dukkhas or am I missing something? Basically, dukkha is in the first truth, in the first teaching, is an iteration of the experiences of dukkha. Dukkha doesn't exist without an experience of it. These are the experiences that are unsatisfactory. If you want to make them not be unsatisfactory, we can take away tanha. But tanha comes with the package, so how do we deal with that? So that's what we're going to talk about next week. But, but dukkha is a, a composite. If you take away the unpleasantness, no dukkha. If you take away the, ta- the reactivity, no dukkha. Okay. So the compassionate response can be to remove either or both. But you'd only need to remove one to get rid of dukkha. But that may leave you with unpleasantness. So there are, are a lot of people who live with chronic pain. I mean, a lot. More than you know. Maybe a dozen of you in here have got some form of it. I mean, it's just really, a lot of people have chronic pain. Nothing you, that, you know, it's, it's dealing with the reactivity to it that can provide some relief, not make it worse. And learning how to do that is the, is the task of the practice. So is that, is that helpful? I think so. Let me see if I can reiterate what you're sure. saying. Sure. Um, still unpleasantness, but no more dukkha. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to clarify, um, is it, when when we talk about compassion, are you saying that the ultimate compassion is really to extend or or make the, the... all the people in this world kind of understand these teachings. Well, the you don't have to do that. But you, can, you, you don't have to have people understand the teachings to, to take food if you offer it to them when they're hungry. So compassion, I should have said something about compassion. I sort of skipped over that. We talked about what is dukkha. And, so compassion, in terms of neuroscience, how do we know what somebody else is feeling? You know, you can, you can hold up a picture of someone and say, what, what are they angry? 
happy, you know, curious. I mean, people can identify, you, can, you sort of get a read. And, and, and the reason is because we know what anger feels like ourselves. We see them. We got the same. You can, they can actually put sensors on your face and watch the muscles contract to match the contractions on the muscles of the face of a, someone you're looking at. So we can recognize when other people are suffering. We can recognize when they're happy. When they're happy, people laughing and people start giggling, it's contagious, right? Yeah. When you recognize that someone's suffering, you feel it yourself. There's, there's a word in Pali which is anukampa, which, which means the, the quivering of the heart in the presence of, of suffering. It's the feeling in the heart, recognizing suffering. Karuna, which is the, the word in the Brahma Viharas, along with metta, Karuna is not just the wish for someone to not suffer. It's, it's enacted, in my view. It's enacted through speech, action, and livelihood, through what we say, what we do, and how we assemble our lives. So compassion is the effort in us, built into us. We want pleasantness, right? What the Buddha found was, you know, if you try to make things pleasant by monkeying with things, it's problematic. Sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the way that's not problematic it's to not make it worse yourself. And if you don't make it worse yourself, everything is better automatically because you didn't add more mess. May I ask a clarifying Please? question? Yeah. If, because you said, you know, yes, we can recognize somebody's suffering. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so if that person's suffering from pain, maybe we can give that person medication or hunger, we can give that person food, but ultimately, you know, to have that person, that, that's only um, very temporal. That's but, what, yeah. But isn't true compassion, ultimate compassion to make that that's, person kind of realize it, it's, these if principles? You can, if you can. The Buddha, the Buddha thought this insight is so deep, nobody will get it. I can't teach it. It'll be vexatious to me. And then in the tradition, Brahma came down and said, you know, there's some people with just a little dust in their eyes. And you can help them. And so out of compassion for the world, for the suffering in the world, he taught. So, yes, the truth, but sometimes... Um, it's you can't sometimes people won't hear so you can only do so much thank you yeah. anything else everything else is clear <laughs> no problems well next week we will we will look in some more detail into into the uh, the actual practices of making that dukkha go away well, thank you for your attention. I'm not going to print this out again next week.
So if you want one, bring it. 